Well, good morning. Um, I want to just be really clear about something real quick because uh, I made a mistake. Uh, your pastor sometimes makes mistakes. Uh, that's why I should talk about grace every once in a while. Um, if uh, you want to be a part of the class that uh, I'm going to be doing, we are starting this Wednesday night. Now, I think I sent a bunch of information out that we're going to be starting the 23rd. Um, ignore that. Uh, we're going to be starting this Wednesday. If somebody shows up the 23rd, we will start the actual study on the 23rd, um, but we're going to do kind of some preliminary work this Wednesday night. And, and so um, if you want to be a part of that, come this Wednesday night starting at 630. Um, I, 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 as, as we kind of get started here, here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark 2. Um, we're in a series on Mark. And as you're uh, turning your Bibles over to Mark 2, uh, I just want to let you know that what I'm going to talk about this morning, I, I think is something that's um, we, we don't talk a whole lot about in the church or a lot of churches and a lot of pastors don't talk about this, but I'm going to talk about a problem that we all have. And in fact, I believe that if you probably, and this is, a, this is just kind of an inexact science, I haven't gone back and like checked on this, I'm not even sure if there is a way you can, but I believe that if you were to go back about 50 or 100 years ago, you could probably get everybody to agree um, that what I'm about to talk about today is the biggest problem that we have in society or in our country or in the world. But um, if I, I don't think that you could get people to agree on it today. In fact, I think even people in our churches would have trouble um, agreeing on or about this, this problem or the depths of this, this problem. And I could be completely wrong about that, but that's just kind of the feeling I get as I, because I, I like to listen to pastors preach and teach and so forth, and um, I kind of like to read what's out there, right, and, and all those sorts of things. Now, I'm going to teach it in a way that I think even if you're a Christian, that um, you'll find kind of interesting, because I may say some things that you've never heard before. Uh, so follow along with me. We're going to take a journey kind of to get there as we're in Mark chapter 2. We're going in, we're in a series of Mark chapter 2, and um, what we're doing in this series, we're, we're going to try to hit probably every chapter of Mark. We may miss one just because of some scheduling. Um, but uh, so we were in Mark 1 last week. We're in Mark 2 now and leading up to what I'm, I'm getting here uh, to here. What has happened is John the Baptist has been preaching. John the Baptist is kind of a wild man preacher. Um, and he's out there talking about Jesus. Jesus has performed a number of miracles. Jesus is going around teaching. And at one point in Mark 1, what we're actually told is that Jesus's fame has spread everywhere. Now, now we're to the point where we're in Mark 2, and Jesus is coming back to his hometown, or not necessarily his hometown where he was raised, but kind of the base of his ministry um, in Capernaum. And so verse 1, chapter 2 of Mark, if you have your notes, this is in your notes as well. And this is what we told. And when he, they're talking about Jesus here, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is just home base for ministry. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. This is about 20 miles outside of Jesus' home where he was raised. In verse 2, it says, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So you need to imagine here uh, that Jesus is in this house here, and there's a bunch of people crowded around, and there's no room. And this is what's going on at this moment as Jesus has this house full of people. It says, And he was preaching the word. To them, One of the things that you need to remember about Jesus is that he was a preacher. Jesus was a, a preacher and a teacher. Uh, and one of the reasons that I want to remind you of that is because preaching and teaching needs to be important to you when it comes to Jesus. Now, the other day when we had our uh, um, Christmas Eve service, my son was 
in the service, and he asked me a question after the service. He said, Dad, I noticed that before you came up onto the platform that you kind of bowed your head. Why do you do that? And I told him, well, son, I bow my head before I come on the platform because I'm praying that God would give me a good sermon. And so he then asked, well, Dad, why didn't God do that? I know some of you feel that way sometimes. I get it. Uh, but, but preaching is important. It was important to Jesus. Jesus was, was primarily a, a preacher. That's what Jesus was. At, at Jesus' very core, that's who he was. When Jesus got people together, what he did is he preached to them. I'm gonna, but we forget about this, right? I've got books, by the way. We're not the first generation to maybe sometimes not like preaching or lean into preaching. I've got books that are about, they're over 100 years old that are addressing that people no longer like preaching um, or they find preaching boring or whatever that might be. Uh, and we too, though, if we're even reading through the Bible, we kind of miss this a lot of times. I'll give you an example. If, if you're not used to, to, to being in church or haven't read the Bible or don't know a lot of Jesus's teaching, I want you to think back to Jesus being at the Sea of Galilee. 5,000 people um, are gathered around the Sea of Galilee. And if you can remember this, right, this isn't really a tr trick question, uh, but what, is, what do you remember kind of most about that? You, you, you probably remember, right, that Jesus feeds 5,000 people there with a couple loaves and two fish. The, the disciples were fishermen. Obviously, they weren't very good because they only had two fish. But, but that's what you remember probably most about that story. And you should, because there's a miracle going on in that story, right? It's something that's, that, that is easier to remember that doesn't stick out to you. Do you know why all of those people were there? And do you know what Jesus did before he performed the miracle? They were there to hear Jesus preach and teach. Uh, a, a lot of us, when we come to Jesus and, and we read about Jesus, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the miracle. And, and we forget that before Jesus ever gets to many of his miracles, what he is going to do is he's going to preach and teach to them. You see, miracles are in our lives and changes in our lives are often an extension of the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. His preaching and teaching actually prepares the way for that new thing in your life, for that breakthrough in your life. And so Jesus has got a crowd of people here, and he's in the room. He's in this room. Many of them are probably looking for a miracle, but what Jesus does to, for them and to them is he, he's teaching to them. He's preaching to the, the word to them. And in verses 3 and 4, it continues in this story, and it says, And they came. Now, this is interesting. And they came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men. And so four men are on their way, and they're carrying their friend, who's a crowd. They remove the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed which the paralytic lay. Now, this is interesting. These men show up, and they are trying to get their friend to Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. His fame has spread everywhere. And what they've heard about Jesus up until this point is that Jesus is performing miracles and does perform miracles. And, and, but they're late to get to Jesus. So they can't get to him because the house is full. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just guess that it's not easy to transport a paralyzed man in the first century, right? And so maybe that's why they were late. Was anybody late this morning? Right. Don't raise your hand. Everybody here knows it, um, <laughs> right? My, my, wife, my, my, my wife likes being, she doesn't like being late, but she's got a word for it. She calls it Rock Creek time, like the little town where she's from. I keep trying to tell her we are on Eastern Standard Time, um, but the, the truth is, is they are late, and so we're going to see kind of what's going on here as they are late and what they have to do. 
um, what we're told here is that they're going to try to get this man to Jesus because they believe that Jesus can heal, but they can't get to him. So what, how, how, what are they going to do? How are they going to do that? Um, we know that they're going to go up a stairway, or, well, I'm telling you that, that they're going to go up a stairway. This isn't actually in the text, but as archaeologists will tell you, if you go back to Capernaum and kind of around the Galilean area, um, most houses kind of had steps um, leading up to the roofs, and the roofs were relatively flat um, with some, like, wood yeah, help me out, Dan. You build houses and do stuff. But that, you know, the boards that went across, and then they had a thatch roof. So a thatch roof is made of uh, straw and dirt and all of that sort of thing. So these men are taking their friend who is paralyzed up on the roof, and they're getting him up to the roof. And what they're going to do at this point is they're going to start digging through the roof. Uh, so that they can get this man down. Now, you need to stop for a moment, and you need to put yourself in that room. Jesus is teaching these, this crowd, just as I am teaching you. And I want to imagine for a moment that if this, that this started happening right now, right here, right? What, what would take place? What's going to happen is shingles are going to start falling down on you, right? You're going to probably start covering yourself. I'm probably going to stop. My, my, the, the, the interruption is going to be fairly big. And so these people in this room, all of a sudden, they have dirt and straw and maybe pieces of wood, all of this falling on their heads while Jesus was teaching them. And so you have this interruption. And so I imagine that the room now has just kind of stopped. Jesus has stopped teaching. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on as they look up at the room. And now we are going to see how Jesus reacts. Everybody's quiet. Everybody's wondering what's going on. And these men are lowering their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. And so how does Jesus react? In verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiving, forgiven. Now imagine this. What would you have been thinking? Kind of what would you have expected Jesus to say in that moment? Uh, some of you maybe would have said, Jesus, I, I, I wish you would scold these men for interrupting our time together for this teaching. You're about to hit a point, and you're about to tell us something, and now we are rudely interrupted by these men who showed up late to lower this man down. How dare they? Others, this is probably our stewards, right? Some of our leaders, they'd have been watching this roof come apart and going, that's going to be expensive, right? <laughs> I hope, I hope Jesus tells them not to do that again. Okay. My guess is a majority of the room, a majority of the room is sitting there probably going, do a miracle, Jesus. Do a miracle. I mean, I'm just going to guess because they have heard that Jesus was doing miracles, that this is what they were hoping would happen. And what does Jesus do? Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Like, it, doesn't, it, really, it really doesn't take a rocket surgeon to figure out here. Somebody got that. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't take somebody who's really bright to figure out that this man who is being lowered down is being lowered down so that Jesus could heal his paralysis. His friends did not bring him to Jesus so that his sins could be forgiven. They're not there for that. I want you to think about, is there anything worse physically 
Right? I'm sure you, some of you are going to think of something. But is there anything worse physically than, than, than being paralyzed? Probably not. Probably not. What's your biggest problem right now? That's a big problem for that man. What's yours? If I were to ask you what your biggest problem is, what was your biggest problem maybe that you've ever faced in life that you've ever come up against? Right? Was, it, was it physical? Maybe it was monetary? Right? Had something to do with something like that? Right? But what Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is doing here, right, is he's trying to get us away from those sorts of things. And what he's, what he's doing here, he's, he's saying this paralyzed man who can't work, he can't move, it has to be a very difficult existence, especially in the first century. What he tells this man is that the biggest problem in his life is not his physical situation, but rather is his sin. This is really interesting here. The biggest problem in this man's life is his sin. And this is true for all of us. As a Christian, this is really easy to forget. If you're not a Christian, right, this is something that, that our society is really no longer receiving. You see, we try to fix all of our problems, basically through wealth and health. And as a society, we've done a fairly good job of that. I just want you to know, right, if we, we, are the, we are the richest society in the history of the world. You know, poor people have refrigerators and TVs, and cars, and houses. We are fairly wealthy, right? We are living longer, right? Well, I think it's gone down a little bit because we're eating even more. But for the most part, we are living longer than anybody else has in the history of the world. And here's the deal, right? Is we are more depressed and we are taking our own lives at a faster rate than we ever have in the history of the world. And one of the problems is, is that we can no longer diagnose the real problem that is wrong with all of us and all of humanity. And it's that we all struggle with sin. We can try to relativize, relativize everything that we do in this world, but the truth is, is that we all deal with guilt and shame, and we don't know what to do with it because we know that we struggle with this, uh, this idea of sin. Telling people that you're all right, just, be, just by following your heart or whatever, does not fix the problem that is within us. It doesn't. That's part of the problem, right? is that's what we are telling people. And we have forgotten this really simple doctrine of sin and that our hearts are actually broken. They're broken. They're full of sin without Jesus Christ. That's our problem. Christianity has always taught this. Some of you are reading through the Bible um, uh, in a year. And it, what you should get from Genesis 1 through 12 is this. Right? That God is good, that God created creation good, that God created Adam and Eve to be with him and to live with him forever and to be in relationship with him. And Adam and Eve sinned. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned, our hearts have become deeply sinful. We are just like Adam and Eve after the sin, after the fall. That's the point of Genesis 1 through 12. 
that God created the world so that you wouldn't live in chaos. After sin comes into the world, it is chaotic because we are deeply sinful. Now, we need to take a moment and define sin. What is sin in the New Testament? And many of you have heard it defined in these ways. In the New Testament, uh, sin is usually described by this word in the Greek, armatia. Armatia basically means missing the mark. And some pastors will kind of downplay this. They'll say, you've got a target and you've just missed the mark. Now, um, it's, it's not a big deal, right, if you just miss the mark in archery. It really isn't, um, unless it's like for a million dollars or something. I but but it, if you miss the mark, the moral, the, the, the moral standard that God has set for us, and you're going to stand before a holy, a holy God and a holy judge, mix, missing the mark is, is a really big deal in the New Testament. Sinning is a really big deal in the New Testament because sin brings along condemnation. In the Old Testament, it's very similar to this, right? You, you get synonyms to the word sin um, in the Old Testament, like transgression and so forth. And it basically means that you are breaking God's moral laws. And so what the Old Testament is trying to do when it talks about sin and what the New Testament is trying to do when it talks about sin in those ways are, are trying to show you that you are a, a lawbreaker and a sinner. Way, ways that pastors have often done this have moved kind of from sin to you being a sinner and your heart being bent is kind of a, a really um, simple way. And you've probably heard me use this before and I've heard, uh, seen pastors do this before. They'll ask you kind of a series of questions and it begins usually kind of with the last part of the Ten Commandments. So they'll ask you questions like this. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Right? And you'll likely, right, if you're honest, right, if you're not a liar, right, you'll, you'll say, yeah, of course. And so they'll ask you, well, what does that make you? Well, it, it makes you disobedient, right? Well, have you ever committed adultery? And you might say, well, no, I haven't committed adultery. And then the, the pastor kind of gets annoying at this point. He goes, well, you know, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus said, if you, if you ever uh, lust after somebody else, it's not your spouse. You've committed adultery in your heart. Uh, and by the way, the reason that Jesus says that, I'll just teach this real quick. The reason that Jesus says that is that often if you lust them after somebody and continue to cultivate that lust, <laughs> if, the action, if, if the opportunity presents itself, you will take it. Often we don't commit adultery, not because our hearts are in the right place, but because the opportunity isn't there. Um, and, and so he'll say, well, so what do you call an adulterer? Or somebody who who's in a, 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 commits adultery? And you'll say, well, an adulterer. And, and then they'll ask you a question, have you ever stolen anything? So yeah, I've, I've stolen something. Well, what do you call somebody who steals something? A thief. Well, have you ever lied? Yeah, I've lied. Well, what do you call somebody who's lied? A liar. And so then the, the pastor will continue, and, and they'll say, well, you just admitted that you're a disobedient adulterer who's a thief, and you're a liar. And if you're honest with yourself, right, this is a pretty humbling uh, uh, experience that you're having. If you're really going to tell major problems in your life, and you do have a sin problem in your life, and that you probably are a sinner if you're humble enough to receive that. Now, I've always, and I believe that to be true, by the way, but I've always kind of struggled with that way of kind of doing things, and usually a pastor does a good job of resolving it and kind of moving on, and there are ways to do that. But I've struggled with that, and I haven't always figured out why. 
but this week, kind of in my, in my study, I think I have. And, and I want to teach, teach you what I mean by that. You see, that is all fo- focusing on us breaking the law, kind of being lawbreakers. But, but here's what I strongly believe, is that the problem is not just that we are lawbreakers, but that we are bad lovers. So I'm not a bad lover. Yes. Right? Not, the, the biggest problem is that not that we are lawbreakers, but that we are bad lovers. Let me illustrate this for a second. I get, when I was going through that, that illustration there, I was using the last part of the Ten Commandments. Well, that almost always leaves out the first part, the first four. And the first four of the Ten Commandments goes something like this. You shall have no other God before me. You shall have no idols. You shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. And you should keep that Sabbath day holy. Now, what are all of these about? If this is the first part of the Ten Commandments, all of these are about your relationship with God. Your love relationship with God. If this is true, right, if this is true, it's not that sin isn't breaking law, that part of that, and, 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 and having kind of the separation with God because you break his law. But if this is true, sin is not rooted in that. But rather, sin is, so, so, so sin is not rooted in what we do, but rather in who we ignore. So if you're taking notes, I know, right, I told you I was going to teach this in a way that you haven't heard before, probably. This is true. Sin is not rooted in what you do, but in who you ignore. You see, when we ignore God, right, we are sinning. We are sinning when we ignore God. It's kind of, here's what we do when we sin. God, you do your own thing, and I'll do mine over here. That's what sin really looks like. Like, I know you want this for me, for my life, but I'm going to choose this over here. So we're going to define sin this morning like this in ways that you may have not thought of before, but it's true. Is that sin is seeking life independent from God. Sin is seeking life independent from God. That's what sin is, right? Sin doesn't just separate you from God. You've all heard that, that sin separates you from God. But sin in and of itself is separation from God. It's getting your relationship with God messed up. It's not loving God more than anything else in the world. And you might ask me, Josh, why should I love God more than anything else in the world? And the truth is, is it's dangerous not to. It's dangerous not to. When we talk about breaking laws, I can tell you that we're going to stand before a holy God someday and that God is ultimately going to be our judge. And that is certainly one way to, to, to teach the gospel. And it's true. But the truth is, is that if you don't love God more than anything else, it'll destroy you right here and right now. The reason that Jesus forgave, wanted this man to be whole then and now. You see, the paralyzed man was dependent on his sin being forgiven if he was going to be made complete and whole. And Jesus wanted him to be completely healed and not partially. Let me illustrate it like this or let me ask you this question. Hopefully this will help kind of lead into how this might play out in your life. When is the last time you've accomplished something really great in your life that you set out to accomplish? Think about that. When's the last time that you set a goal for your life or that God brought healing maybe to a relationship um, or maybe to your life uh, or maybe it was something, I don't know, uh, financially that you got to or the job that you always wanted, whatever. Think about that. 
how long did the joy last? How long did that make you happy? How long did that make you whole? How long did that make you complete? This man was going to be healed. We're going to see in a moment that he's going to get up and walk. His joy and his happiness, even in that, Jesus knows would be temporary. The truth is, if you don't put God first in your life, your life will fall apart. Everything else that we stake our life on is just sinking sand. It's, It's a bad foundation. This past week, I was at Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and a young lady shared. The young lady played volleyball for the Ohio State University. If anything, if you know anything about volleyball, um, Penn State, Ohio State, like UCLA, those are the places that if you're really good, you get to go play volleyball at. And so she was a, a she started on uh, the Ohio State University. She sh- suffered an injur- injury several years in. She was raised in the church, all of those sorts of things, doing her best to follow Jesus. And she said when she was injured, it shook her to the core because what she realized is that volleyball was first in her life. It it almost destroyed her is what she said because volleyball became an idol. It became the thing that she was living for. And, And through that experience, she discovered that everything in this world can be taken away from us except for God. Not only that, she felt somewhat worthless now that she couldn't play volleyball. So her self-worth just plummeted at that point until she got back on track with the Lord. Now, this is true for all of us. If your job is more important to you than your Lord and Savior, than Jesus Christ, than God Almighty, the person who will last forever and go on forever, when that job is taken from you or you, are get, you get to the age where you can no longer do it, your life will fall apart. It will. If you base your life on popularity right, and you somehow lose it or it's taken, to you, taken from you, your life will be destroyed. It will fall apart. This is why Jesus, by the way, tells you to put him in front of your family. You may be killing it with your family right now. You may be in that sweet spot. But the truth is, right? It may not be like that always. And if you put, if you put them first, right, and things change, your life will be destroyed. Not only that, right? Not putting God first is what causes, when you get to the second part of the Ten Commandments, what causes you to lie? You want to protect your reputation at all costs, so you don't care what it does to somebody else. What causes you to steal? You don't believe that your God can really provide, so you will take from somebody else. It's it's all rooted in the first four, everything. All those other commandments are rooted in, all those other sins that we typically think about are all rooted there. It's, It's rooted in our lack of love and trust for God. And here's the deal. You're gonna get to the end of your life, right, if you don't know the Lord, and you're gonna think about those things, and you're gonna feel guilty about everything you've done, and you're not going to know what to do with it, right? If you still have a soul, right, if you still have a conscience, no counselor has ever figured out really how to get rid of guilt. We all carry it. This is one of the reasons we're struggling. So I'm going to pick back up in this story here because this needs to be resolved. All this needs to be resolved. And it says, verse 6, 
They're in this room. Jesus heals this man. He says, your sins are forgiven. He's showing that sin is the problem. And it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Uh, scribes are Old Testament scholars. Their job was actually to copy the Old Testament over and over again and know it pretty much by heart and know what it means. And so this is what the scribes are going to be questioning in their hearts, these Old Testament scholars. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So to blaspheme um, God is basically to speak untruths against God. Right? And what these men are saying here is that Jesus is sinning if he claims to be God and is not because all sin is actually against God. Right? You get that? So all sin is actually, it, it is against your neighbor if you sin against your neighbor, but it's equally against God because if you're putting God first, you're not going to sin. Right? You're going to do what God wants you to do, so you're not going to harm your neighbor. And, and, and so, right, you can't, another way to put this is to think about this. So Tom, Dick, and Harry, if Tom sins against Harry, Dick can't forgive Tom for what he did to Harry. Does that make sense? All right. Logic's tight. I'll talk to you about it later if you don't get it. Either way here is that they're accusing Jesus of claiming to be God. And, and by the way, the t- punishment for this in first century Israel was death. This is what sends Jesus to the cross, by the way. Jesus doesn't go to the cross because he was a good person, uh, because he was an insurrectionist. Um, he didn't go to the cross for any of that. He goes to the cross for claiming to be God. That's why he is sent. Verses 8 and 9. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his heart that thus they questioned within themselves, saying, why, or Jesus is saying, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Again, needs real quick ex- explanation. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or be healed. Now, the point here being made is that both are equally hard for men to say. A, a mere man to tell somebody that you are healed, right, through their own power, cannot be done. Neither can a man forgive sins. But both are equally easy for God to do. God can both heal and God can forgive. The only trouble with all of this is only one of what what can be proven it's the healing it's jesus's healing power because this man either will get up and walk or he won't okay so verses 10 and 11 but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic so he's going to look over at the paralytic now and he's going to say i say to you rise i want you to circle that word if you're taking notes or in your bible now Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately and pick up, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so this is what Jesus says to them all, basically, and does in front of them all. You don't believe that I have the power to forgive sins? Watch this. Rise, get up and walk. Go home. That was the visible, this is, you're going to need to know this here. That, that was a visible miracle, all right? that proved that Jesus was God and had the authority to forgive sins. Jesus forgave the sin, which is the miracle from God, but then he uses a physical miracle to show that he has the power to do it. Get, get up, go. Uh, I, I want you to hold on to that word rise right now. The healing is proof. The healing is proof. Christians, here's what I want you to know this morning, right? Is that... 
God does take sin seriously. And he has. We know that. Because Jesus went to the cross and he died for your sins. He took on your sin. He took on the punishment that you deserve on the cross. If God didn't take sin seriously, if he didn't believe that that was the primary problem with the world, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. He wouldn't have. But here's what the cross reminds us of, is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. You see, what we see on the cross is God's love for us, God's love for you, and God's promise that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And so if you have any guilt in your life, any shame in your life for anything that you've done in the past, you need to give that up right now and you need to rise up and you need to walk out of that. If you want to have a whole and complete life, you need to know that God loves you enough to die for you, to send his son for you. You need to know that this morning. That is the lesson that you need to leave with. Others of you, here's what you need to know. And it's clear in this text very clear, is that trying harder is not the solution to walking out of your sin. Trying harder is not the solution to walking out of your sin. This world will tell you, right, if you want to to just get better or change, that all you need to do is get with this five-step program or so forth, that is not where you begin. Think about it. What did this paralyzed man do before Jesus forgave him of his sins and before Jesus healed him? Nothing. Nothing. This paralyzed man had nothing to offer Jesus. Why did Jesus decide to to heal him? He says, "When when Jesus saw this man and his friend's great faith. So here's all of our solution to sin. Here's your solution to sin. If you're taking notes this morning. The solution to sin is not to try harder, but by faith, give your life to Jesus Christ who forgives you of sin. That is where you begin. That is where you begin. You see, if sin is not rooted in what you do to begin with, you can't do anything to get yourself out of sin. You get that? That's, that's why we define sin this morning the way we did. If you can't, if sin isn't rooted in what you do to begin with, you can't do anything to get you out. So give your life to Jesus Christ. He can be trusted. I told you to hold on to the word rise. Rise is the same word that Jesus uses at the end of Mark when he's explaining to his disciples that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for your sins. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Get that? And Jesus tells them, I'm going to die for your sins what he's trying to get them to understand well that's an invisible miracle how can I be sure Jesus that the cross really pays the price for my sins how can I be sure that the cross can relieve my guilt so Jesus says I'm going to give you a visible miracle I want to rise from the dead and that's what he does and that's why we can be assured that no matter what you have done in this life that you are forgiven and that you are loved by Jesus Christ. And the only thing that you have to do to receive that is to give him your heart and to love him.
I hope that if you have not done that this morning, that you will. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we remember, remember today that the biggest problem that we will ever face in this world and in our life, you have provided a solution to. Father, we admit that we are sinners, but we also know that your son has died on the cross in our place so that we might have forgiveness of sin. You didn't do this because we were good or because we could give you anything. What could we give God? You did this simply because you love us and want a relationship with us. So I ask that you help us all love you more for what you've done for us, Father. I pray that nobody leaves this room this morning with a guilty conscience, that we can leave here believing that you have forgiven us, believing that you love us. I pray, Father, that if there is anybody here this morning who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who has not received the forgiveness of sins, Father, that they choose to do so at this moment. That they don't wait until they try to get their life together or make up for past mistakes, but Father, they just come to you right now. They ask you for forgiveness, they receive forgiveness, and they walk in your light and in your love and in your grace. I pray in their hearts that this is decided at this moment so that you might begin to change our hearts so that we might, just like this paralyzed man who may be stuck in our sin, can get up and walk. Free people, whole people, spiritually healthy people. Father, at this time, we're about to take our offering and people are about to give their tithes. I thank you for giving us all that we have. Every dime that you've given us comes from you. We pray that as we give back, we give back with hearts of gratitude. And we pray that what we give goes to share the gospel, goes to share the good news of Jesus Christ, helps people resolve this problem in their life, the problem of sin. We pray that miracles are done because of the money that's given. People are fed and people are loved. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.